Is anybody going to get one of the zero two W's? Nah, probably not. But for fifteen dollars, I don't know. That's uh, that's a pretty good price. But that RAM seems like a real limiting factor. It's fifteen dollars if you're able to walk into a micro center. You asked the wrong question. The question would be how many of these <laughs> one would get. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. It's starting to get chilly, but I'm Joe. From a very wet northwest of England, this is Tony. Building hardware from source, I'm Norbert. And for uses directed, I'm Josh. This is episode 373.5, recorded on Sunday the 31st of October. Happy Halloween. Livestream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube, post at the Mintcast subreddit, chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at mintcast.org. In our innards section, we're going to discuss the applications that we all use most often. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. Uh, this week in the Linux Innards, we wanted to discuss the apps that we use. And for myself, I wanted to uh, talk about the ones that are on all of my machines. Like, I set up a new machine, these are the apps I put on because I'm going to use them. And, and the the first one I picked is actually kind of an odd one to be on all my machines. But yeah, it turned out I put it on all. So, and that's um, Cura. Now, uh, Cura is a slicing software for 3D printers, um, and, and it runs from an app image. Now, I know, um, I think you can also get it in a flat pack, maybe, but I'm not, I'm not, not certain on that one. It makes the setup very simple, and it, it, it's pretty easy to customize it if you need. And you can save all your settings and everything like that in an external file, and then load it in when they provide a new one. Um, strangely, I, I use this very often, uh, a lot of times just to see how I can tweak a print to make it faster or to see how the items I sometimes design with Tinkercad, which uses Autodesk. So I think I'm going to install Autodesk and see how that works. And, um, we'll print and, and what angle to set them at for them to, to print best with. Um, I can't really think of anything negative to say about this application, but I haven't really tried out any other slicing application to make a comparison though, except for um, Repetier's built-in slicer, which is usually just an older version of Cura. So um, updates do come down and they always seem to be an improvement, even if an only an incremental improvement. I, I used this yesterday to test out a design that I had made to add a, a table to my new chair that I'm working on fixing. Um, it's not a complex design, but it is uh, somewhat large and requires a lot of tweaking of settings in order to get the print time down. Like um, when I first set up the print, it was a 27 hour print. I got the print time down to um, 14 and a half hours. And 
that's just the first print of this adapter. I'm th thinking I'm going to have to make it like 10 millimeters shorter on the top, 10 millimeters shorter on the bottom and then see how it works. It's, it's made to fit in the cup holder that's on the chair and to have two holes in the top so that I can mount a table to that and that will allow it to swivel. Um, I'll, I'll next show, I'll probably talk more about that in my biweekly wanderings because I, I did a lot of work to get that chair working correctly. And it's, it, I like it. I think it's a really nice chair. The next application that I use on all my machines is, uh, standard notes. Um, I know someone had mentioned standard notes in the, um, discord as well, that they had started using it. Um, the flat pack version of that. Uh, now I use the app image for this as well. Um, yes, all the information that I type out is stored on other people's servers, but the encryption doesn't allow for anyone without the password to read it. They don't have the encryption keys on their end. So I, I can do everything and be fairly certain it's secure as long as no one has my password. Now it automatically syncs changes between all my devices and it, it's great for um, journaling and lists. It's not as full featured as something like Evernote, um, but it is free and generally very stable. I can only think of like one day where I wasn't able to access it for whatever reason. Um, I back up all of my scripting that I do, um, there as well. And also put my Docker commands that I use regularly. And I make a copy of my FS tab and keep it there in case my main computer is non-recoverable and I need to rebuild it from scratch. I have that FS tab there and then all my scripting that I have there will work the way that I expect it to because everything is in the exact same locations. I've also used it to, to write a few articles that I've written in the past and it quickly and easily allows me to switch between devices and continue right where I left off. I absolutely love that feature. I'll be working on something out in the garage on the machine out there. And then I'll come inside to sit with the family and I'll sit at this computer here and open up my standard notes and just continue on from right where I was at. And then if I go back out there, all the changes I made are ready to go. So Joe is standard notes, a kind of cloud-based and desktop-based uh, note uh, application. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is desktop based, but it gets backed up to the cloud. Right. Someone else's computer essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So even if all of my machines were turned off and I loaded up on a new machine, I would still be able to pull down all of my stuff. Yeah. Cool. And then um, the third application that I picked is um, Resilio Sync. And yeah, all my machines have Resilio Sync on it. Um, I've discussed Resilio Sync several times before on the show. If you've listened to the show, you've probably heard me talk about it. Um, I use it to sync files across all of my machines and I use it for scripting actions um, when paired with cron. Um, I use cron as a file watcher and if I add the file on one machine, it syncs it to my, uh, my server and then cron looks for it and does specific actions based on either what's in the file or simply the file being there. I also use it on my phone 
so that I can drop my audiobooks into a folder on my PC and then it will automatically sync with my phone. Uh, also use it to delete those same files when I'm done listening. I will also add several nodes so that the addition of books happens much faster. The more nodes you have, the quicker it will saturate your connection to your phone and the quicker it will, you know, transfer the files onto it. I also use it in conjunction with Cura as well so that I can set up a print from whatever machine I'm on and then have it available instantly on the machine um, with Repetier. So then I just go to the Repetier machine or, um, you know, use the desktop from there using X2Go and, and launch the print that way. And I also use it for the standard things that everybody else uses, would use something like that for, which is, um, backing up specific files. Like, um, uh, all the pictures that I take with my phone automatically get backed up to a couple of different PCs. If I want something to specifically be available on all my machines, then I have a specific folder that I can drop it into and it will be available on any machine that I have turned on. And as soon as I turn on the machines that aren't turned on, it's going to very quickly be on there and available as well. As for the browser I use, I use Chrome and I, I'm kind of, you know, stuck in the environment with Chrome. I'd like, I have given Firefox a try. Um, I, Firefox was my main browser in the distant past, but I'm just very, very in the, the Google ecosystem at this point and kind of locked into, to Chrome. Um, not really planning on trying to get away from it at this point. Um, and yeah, that, that's pretty much everything. Um, Tony. Yeah. So, uh, like you, Joe, uh, all these things are on all of my PCs when I do an install. So I'll start off with my browser because, uh, it's the first thing I tend to uh, go and uh, set up and that's Firefox. I've really got to, to like the fact that you can have a Firefox account. And then once you've got that, uh, up and running everything else comes back so uh, because it backs everything up onto someone else's computer in the cloud but it remembers all your uh, accounts and stuff so uh, yeah I really like that I've got to admit Firefox does have a few issues uh, and one of them is it doesn't necessarily play very well with some of the video conferencing software one particular one which is uh, Jitsi I use um, for my lug doesn't seem to like for Firefox and it does advise you it works better in Chrome so I've got Chromium as a backup for when I'm using Jitsi but most of the time it's Firefox and that's always on all the computers I use so the other things that I install on every PC or make sure are installed on every PC because some of them come as standard and others you have to actually uh, install. The first one is GIMP. Uh, the G, uh, GNOME Image Manipulation Program to give it its full title. So I do quite a lot of image editing, not really powerful Im image editing, you know, fairly, you know, fairly easy stuff to do. But the GIMP uh, gives me the tools that I need to do it because I've started doing a lot of modeling and some of the models require um, 
decals on them. Uh, I've started making my own decals, which is one of the reasons I bought the uh, colour laser printer, so I could print my own uh, decals out, which are water slide transfers for anyone who's... Uh, uh, not sure what they are so you can, you can use them for other things it's not just for modeling people use them for putting images on ceramics and all sorts of stuff you know making um, their own artwork and things but uh, modelers use them for uh, to put the uh, artwork onto uh, both plastic and um, die cast models Quite often, um, I'll start off with a very poor image and I'll put it into GIMP and play around with it to kind of clean it up. And then once I've uh, exported that as a high-quality image, uh, I then go on to my next uh, piece of software, which is uh, Inkscape. But before we... Do, just to say, one of the things I don't like about GIMP is the fact that you... Um, some of the, some of the uh, ways it's... Uh, saves um, the changes you've made aren't necessarily uh, as easy to go back it is starting to get better with layers and things like that that you don't you can um, reverse things through layers but it's not as uh, good as things like photoshop and stuff like that with that but uh, it is starting to get better and that that applies to one of my other packages that i'll talk about in a minute but anyway, once I've got an image, I'll transfer that into Inkscape. And I, because Inkscape's a vector graphics rather than um, pixel graphics, it's very good at resizing things and maintaining the, the quality without getting hazy when, you, when you're reducing the size of a, an image. So if you start off with a high quality image and you reduce its size, it, it, it can maintain the quality of the image even on a very small object. So that's, I use Inkscape for that. And then I export, uh, create a little, uh, .png image of, uh, several of the, uh, the decals and export that for importing into a word processor for finally, uh, printing them out. And, uh, that's really, you know, it's really good. I like Inkscape as well because if you've got things that need text, you can actually create text and things like that in it as well. So I have actually created my own decals in Inkscape from scratch without a, an original image to go from. Uh, and that gives really good results. And then finally, as a podcaster, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Audacity. There are other audio editors available for Linux, but I've been using Audacity now for best part of 10 years, I think. And I just, I've got used to its workflow. It's, uh, you know, it has its uh, issues. Um, one of them is that it doesn't layer the audio changes you make. So it's very, uh, without destroying all the edits, all the changes you've made, you can't go back to say something you did 10, you know, 10 edits ago without reversing all the other stuff that you've done since then. Whereas if it was layer changes, you'd be able to go to that layer with that change uh, and just play around with that and then keep the other changes. So I do believe there is some talk about them uh, implementing that in the future, but at the moment that isn't something it can do. But apart from that, it is a very good audio editor. And I do know uh, there's a lot of people uh, use it for fairly powerful stuff. Uh, it's very good at multi-tracking and editing multi-tracks. 
which obviously we're using it for multi-track editing because uh, we all record our own track in Audacity and then whoever's doing the edit imports it into a single uh, Audacity instance and then we uh, edit uh, the show and then merge it down to one track. So, uh, yeah, I couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't uh, edit the show without Audacity. I do know uh, when um, Owen was editing the show, he was using uh, another program, but uh, I haven't got into that. So, uh, but that's uh, that's what I use. I use lots of other pieces of software that are installed on all my machines. Uh, but if I started going into them, we'd be here all night. So <laughs> I'm going to give Norbert a chance to talk about what he uses. <laughs> well, for 10 years, I've been using Google Chrome on Windows. Then I moved to Linux and I then I was happy with Chromium for a couple of months. Then the thing happened when they would take away the Google account sign-in from Chromium and essentially every Chromium based browser. And uh, I really need and I really like to have a bookmark syncing in a browser. So I decided to move to Brave and I've been really satisfied with it. So if you, we were doing the show two days ago, I would have said Brave is my go to browser, but I decided to start browser hopping yesterday and I and I also sometimes use a uh, LibreWolf, which is a, a Firefox based browser that is very uh, privacy focused. So whenever I wanted to be signed into something, for example my Google Google account because because I'm too deep in Google's ecosystem and I don't really plan to try and move away from it either, other than moving away from Chrome. So whenever I want to log into something I would use Brave. And whenever I want to do some search that I don't need to be logged into, I would either use Firefox or LibreWolf. But I'm trying to use Firefox as my as my, uh, as my daily driver browser. In a way, it feels good trying to move away from the Chromium base. So other than the browser, I had a bit of a difficulty trying to uh, write my list because I don't really have many things that I other than the browser that I have on all of my machines. So I decided to write the stuff that I use a lot, regardless of what I'm on. So my number one would be LibreOffice, because the two main things that would still keep me on Windows are the Adobe Suite and the Microsoft Office. But at one point I realized that I stopped using Microsoft Office for anything, and I would just go with LibreOffice all the time. And ever since I realized that in LibreOffice there is a built-in UI layout selector, where you can essentially uh, switch to the tab layout, click apply and it would turn the layout uh, from the global menu into the ribbon style that uh, Microsoft Office has. And I started to feel really at home with LibreOffice. And I started to do more customization, for example, for example, switching the icon themes. And it started looking really good with uh, the GTK compatibility installed. So I think for the past three or four months, I haven't even used Microsoft Office for anything that I, for anything significant because I just could do anything in LibreOffice. And my other two are sort of related. It's Audacity and OBS because I would do some video production. And uh, for the recording part, at least, I moved completely to Linux, to Void Linux, which has been my daily driver distro for around four months now. And I had some issues with audio. Audacity wouldn't recognize my microphone. The system would, but Audacity wouldn't record it. Then I switched from Pulse Audio to Pipefire and the problems just went away. So at least for audio and video recording, desktop video recording, I've been using these two. And I've, so I've been using Audacity even on Windows for around 10 years, but I've never really 
uh, did any audio editing, which I want to try to change. So if you are listening to the edited version on your podcast uh, application of this episode, it probably will have been edited by me. And I want to try to get better at audio editing because I would mostly do video editing, which brings me to how I cheated a little and I have come up with two separate lists because I have a list of stuff that I use on Windows that is not available on Linux. And uh, since I've eliminated Microsoft Office from the equation, it's a very simple list. It's basically Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Premiere Pro and Adobe Illustrator. And at this point, those three things. So the Adobe Suite is the only thing that's keeping me on Windows. I'm not sure if I want to try to move away from it for at least not in the near future, because I've been using them for, I think it, more than nine years, so almost 10 years. And I've really gotten into the, to the workflow of, uh, especially Photoshop and Premiere Pro. For example, the, I would sometimes do weird, uh, keyframe editing, uh, for animation that I, I know I really should be doing in After Effects, but I never really got an around to learn After Effects. So I should probably give a fair, uh, chance for Caden Live. Uh, I've tried uh, DaVinci Resolve before on Windows. Sort of okay with having to use the Adobe Suite. I would be really happy if they if they ported it to Linux, of course, but I'm not really mad and I don't really feel bad for having to use Windows. You shouldn't feel bad for having to use Windows. I recently came up with the philosophy that uh, Linux is my friend and Windows is my colleague. And that's my relationship with Windows. It's pretty neutral. It's just a means for an end. Josh, how about you? Well, for my browser, I'm a longtime Firefox user, and it remains my primary on the desktop. Um, I find the multi-account container add-on to be a must-have. Just can't live without that. I love the way it segregates everything. It keeps keeps it all separated. And uh, the privacy features are also very robust still. I know that Mozilla as a company kind of puts their foot in their mouth quite a bit and we're pretty harsh on them in the community, but I still think Firefox is an excellent browser. Uh, I'm also very familiar with it as a longtime user of it. So, uh, yeah, that remains my primary. And then I have Brave and Vivaldi as my backup browsers. I use Brave a little more than Vivaldi, but... uh, I'm trying to use Vivaldi a little more. There's just a lot of options I call like the KDE of browsers. There's tons of stuff to unpack in that thing. So uh, I probably should play with it a little more when I have some time. And my next one is uh, as a person that is almost always listening to music and also has a fairly substantial uh, catalog, uh, good music players must. So there's a lot of excellent options on Linux. I've used a bunch, but uh, here on my main Mint system, I've settled on Lollipop as my player of choice. It's got a modern and slick UI. It handles large collections well, and it has enough options in it to satisfy most. It's not completely stripped down. It's GTK-based, so it integrates nicely into Cinnamon. Um, of course, it's really designed for the GNOME desktop. It's got the hamburger menus and whatnot, but uh, it looks fine here. And uh, yeah, I really enjoy it as a player. And piggybacking off of that, my second one was EasyTag to manage audio file metadata. 
And uh, yeah, it pretty much does what it says on the tin. It's straightforward use and uh, also GTK based. And let's see here for my last pick, I went with Sync Thing. And I use it for an admittedly slightly convoluted way to back up files across various PCs in my house. So I go from my main Mint drive here in my PC, I sync to both the media PC in my front room and to my laptop. And then I use the laptop to sync back to my Debian drive in this CD, or uh, PC, excuse me. It's probably not the most efficient way of doing things, but after the initial sync, everything's pretty quick and easy, and of course, completely automated. And I wanted to give a couple quick mentions to GNU Cache that I use for personal finance management. It's very simple to use. Uh, Hypnotics for IPTV entertainment. It's actually been a lot more useful to me than I thought it'd be. A lot of classic television and movies on there that I really enjoy. And uh, the Web Apps app that Mint put in here for uh, conveniently launching of web pages as apps, it's uh, actually become quite useful for me. I've really enjoyed uh, playing around with that and making it straightforward to launch the web pages I use the most. And uh, yeah, that's it for me. I would also like to to have some honorable mentions that didn't quite make it, it to my list. Like I said, the list of apps I use on my devices is very considerably. So for example, on my tablet, I don't have uh, LibreOffice at all, where I've been using MPV for consuming videos. Then uh, I realized I should probably learn how to use it more because when there would be a video that I need to crop to fit the screen, I would just go back to BLC. Now, VLC is basically on all my machines as well. So that that's really what I use for um, audio on my computer and video on my computer. Yeah, that's my choice as well. Yeah, the randomize function on there is the best that I've found so far. Uh, it's actually different every time you randomize. So, and then like, you know, honorable mention, definitely Belina Etcher, um, what uh Ar- Ar- arduino ide uh caliber um i could yeah go on g parted g parted ends up on all my machines yes g parted is the best friend of any distro hopper oh yeah second best friend after Ventoy. and discs i don't know if you guys use discs yeah that is absolutely a must-have I can't understand why they take once once you've installed Mint, G Party disappears. Yeah, it is annoying, and you have to reinstall it. <laughs> you know, Tony, they do leave discs on there, so maybe they think it's a bit redundant. But of course, disc is anywhere near as powerful as G Parted. But that might be their thought. Yeah, no, I use G Parted all the time. It also doesn't require permissions to start up and it's a lot lighter because it does a lot less. So it definitely has its uses. Yeah. And another one that's on most of my machines, not all, um, but most is um, surprisingly DroidCam and extremely useful um, because my phone has a much better camera than any of my ancient webcams. Um, I'm not using it right now. I'm using an ancient webcam, but, um, it is helpful. It does work pretty well. The only problem with it is every time I have a kernel update, I have to redo the mod probe, 
re- reload the drivers for the loop back and that that does get annoying which is why it's not on my list of favorites does that have a geo uh i interface with it joe or is that just command line um there is there there is a command line interface to connect but um you're going to end up having to do a lot from command line because yeah you're going to have to do the um the reinstalling of the drivers in order to make it work to get the the loop back working again no gotcha but it's the same it's the same with um OBS if i want to use OBS as a um webcam so I, I could change my output that's going to Discord right now by using OBS as a webcam, but I would have to go to the command line and reset up the, the loopback for it. And it's a much easier way to say share your desktop or a more robust way, I should say, as opposed to easier. Okay, let, let, let's call it uh, uh, finished for the innards and move on to vibrations from the ether. And this will be a quick vibrations from the ether because we only got one email. I guess it's just that time of year. Um, And this one is from Alfred. Hey guys, thanks for the podcast. Enjoying it quite a lot. As you can see from my email, I live in the Microsoft world. Exploring Linux as an option to Windows 11. The biggest hurdle so far is the integration of cloud services. OneDrive, G Drive into Linux. Uh, There doesn't seem to be a clean and elegant way of doing this, especially for a noob. Some distros need command line voodoo and all don't handle offline placeholders as cleanly as Windows. Would be a great podcast topic. Um, I did respond to this and I'll get to my response in just a second. I kind of want to expand on it. Actually, let me read the response and then I'll expand on it. So my response was, I agree. It's difficult on Linux and ever changing. Someone comes up with a new way to fuse mount all the different services and then the services brick them. I gave up on it a while ago. And I did. Um, this, this was one of my favorite things to do for a while was to set up a mount so that I could basically have all of these different uh, cloud storage things mounted locally, which was really the only way to do it at the time um, to integrate it with Linux. And it would work and it would work for a month or two. And then the various companies, because they didn't want people to be able to use it that way, would just find a way to brick it. And then it would be another month or so and someone would find another way around what they had bricked and would make it work again. It got to be annoying. I could never count on whether or not I'd be able to access these cloud services the way that I wanted to, or if I'd have to just go back to using their website. In the end, I got rid of most of my cloud services. Um, I I no longer use Dropbox. Um, I still have it. It's very minimal. I use it to back up a couple of things um, like, you know, my resume and things that I don't really care about, but I still need, you know, I still need that extra backup of my resume just in case. Um, I I no longer use, I I had like a terabyte on Amazon. I no longer have that. Um, Asus, I no longer use theirs. I had theirs for a while, uh, because they gave me a whole bunch of free stuff. And if I could still access it the way I wanted to, then maybe things would be different and I would have, you know, paid for it and kept it. But 
Yeah, it's extremely difficult to do on Linux. If anybody knows of a way that is stable, please email us, let us know. Well, for the, the GNOME slash Budgie ecosystem, usually when you set up a distro with GNOME, there's that setup screen when it would ask you if you want to log into any of your cloud accounts. And one day I just got, got curious, I logged into my Google account and in Nautilus, or even if I switched the uh, file managers in Thunder, it was also there. At the left panel, uh, below the drives, my Google drive would appear as a network drive. It wouldn't sync locally, but I would be able to access my files. And I'm pretty sure you can also open files, edit them, and it would upload them. Uh, I had some issues with that. I think I tried editing something with LibreOffice, but if you just want to access your files, it's a half-decent option for it. Okay, and now what was that again? Uh, it just built into GNOME. Okay. I believe Cinnamon has that as well. I think it has... Yeah, you can log into your services. I haven't ever done it, though. Actually, I'm not really sure about Budgie, but since Budgie also has the GNOME control center where you have to set it up, I would assume that it would also work on Budgie, but it certainly works on GNOME. Okay, so if anybody else has any stable methods, easy methods to set up? I know there are some paid ones for Google Drive, but I don't know their names. Yeah, there were a couple of paid ones when I was looking around, but I was definitely looking for the... Uh, um free options. There are some services that will act as a bridge that you pay X amount a month for, and it will allow you to set up all these different things as Fuse. But I, I'm, I'm sure that they have the same issues where they have to go through and do an update every couple of months because the method they use got bricked. What I would do in a bit of a workaround way is since I'm dual booting Windows with Linux, I have my Google Drive sync locally on Windows and I have that same drive mounted on Linux. So whenever I need something from my Google Drive, I would just edit and or open the local files and it wouldn't sync that way. But when whenever I would boot into Windows later that day or the next day, it would just sync. Yeah. No, I used to have a, a really ugly workaround because you could do a lot of it in Windows. I, I would have one machine um, set up with Windows and then um, basically it would run headless over in the corner and I would completely ignore it. And then I would use Resilio Sync or something similar to that. I think it was uh, BT Sync at the time, which is Resilio Sync now and sync that to one of my Linux machines. A and then any changes I made on um, the Linux machine would automatically go to the Windows machine and then that would automatically update the uh, cloud services. But that is just way too uh, dirty of a way to do it. It's a sync of a sync. Yeah. Syncception, if you will. When you thought you couldn't sync deeper. Yeah, it, it was... Uh, nasty way to do it and that is it for our vibrations from the ether let's move on to check this out we have two items in check this out uh, does anybody want to take the first one chicago 95 yeah, I was the one to put it in there because I mentioned I want to try a specific theming on XFCE and I found Chicago 95 bitches 
a complete uh, classical Windows uh, theming uh, from GTK theming and uh, the window manager icons. And I think even the, it has even a, a Windows 95 theme from for the XFCE notification pop-up uh, bubble. So it's supposed to be the best and most thorough uh, Windows classical Windows uh, Windows theme for XFCE. And I just, I got a bit uh, nostalgic because my very first PC I owned was a laptop running Windows 98, which almost looks the same as Windows 95. So I decided I should do some nostalgia. And if anyone likes the classical Windows 95 uh, look of and feel, I would recommend looking at this because I've already installed it once on my desktop to try it out. And it was, it was pretty convincing. It, it even has the fonts, uh, the even the terminal fonts from, from Windows. Yeah, I mean, this definitely looks exactly like classic windows and that is you know at least cool and the other one is a raspberry pi imager i put this one in joe i put this one in uh this is uh, the raspberry pi imager app um we may have talked about this on the show in the past i'm not sure but uh these uh Raspberry Pi have got an imager app that you can download for Windows, Mac, and Linux. They do a, they call it an Ubuntu um, install, but it's a Deb. So I would imagine uh, any Deb-based uh, operating system should be able to run it. Well, Linux Mint does because I installed it. <laughs> but basically, this is a, a way of um, burning any uh, SD card. Uh, of any of the in, uh, images that are available through Raspberry Pi. And if you haven't got them on your system, you get the option to download them while you're trying to install them to the card. So uh, if you've not seen this before, go and check it out. It's quite a nice, cool little uh, application. Yeah, I don't think I talked about it, but this is uh, one of the tools that I used when we had our uh, Raspberry Pi episode where I was uh, covering multi-boot and, and different ways to set it up. But yeah, it, it was a great way to get all the different approved Raspberry Pi uh, images. Yeah, I just thought, considering that we just uh, talked about the new Raspberry Pi uh, Zero 2W, that it might be a good time to talk about it. Absolutely. Is anybody going to get one of the Zero 2Ws? Nah, probably not. But for fifteen dollars, I don't know. That's uh, that's a pretty good price. But that RAM seems like a real limiting factor. For me, it's just it's the fact that fifteen dollars it'll, <laughs> it'll sit there in the cupboard, and I'll probably never use it. Right? <laughs> yeah it it it's fifteen dollars if you're able to walk into a micro center. You asked the wrong question. The question would be how many of these <laughs> one would get. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'll probably end up with a couple sooner or later, but um. Yeah, it's like like I was saying, it's only $15 if you can walk it into a store and purchase it there. Otherwise, your shipping fees are going to be almost equal to uh, the price of the device anyway. Yeah, it depends where you are. Over in the UK, you, I think shipping from the major suppliers over here would be two or three quid. Uh, and you can pick one up for about $13.50 uh, UK. That's not bad at all. Oh. Yeah. Uh, but here, um, most of your sellers are going to be charging quite a lot for shipping on these devices. So, Dale, you're not going to be building a Pi Zero cluster anytime soon? 
<laughs> I'm not big on the whole building a cluster thing, but I definitely want to uh, get one and try and build a handheld out of it. Yeah, I think it's a good price point for that. Yeah, there's a couple of videos already on online about building handhelds uh, for for the Raspberry Pi Zero. Um, I'm not sure whether they. Uh, I think one of them's going to be doing a video on the Zero uh, Two W. So uh, if you if you wait for a couple of weeks, you might you might get one with the latest stuff on it. Yeah, it's always the screen that holds me back. Um, the the price and the shipping on you know a good quality um, seven inch touch screen kind of holds me back from actually doing the project myself. And now you can also find projects where people will remove all of the pieces that stick up on like a, a Pi Four and, and then build a handheld out of that. So mm. yeah. It's it's cool to watch, but I have seen I have seen um, little uh, Nintendo. What uh, what were they called? The Nintendo Lite or something? The ones with the little two and a half inch, three inch screen on them, made uh, using the Raspberry Pi Zero for that. The game Game Boy um, Micro. Probably, yeah. I'm, I'm not into gaming myself, but um, you know, there's some cool videos of making really small games consoles with the with the small smaller screen, two or three inch screen, and they're probably more affordable. Yeah. All right, that's it for check this out. Unless anybody's got anything else to add. You know, before we go, uh, I just wanted to say that if if anyone listens to Linux user space and catches Leo over there, him and Dan gave us a shout last week on their podcast and i just wanted to return the favor and say if you haven't gone over there to check out linux user space uh definitely give it a listen it's a fantastic show and we appreciate them giving us a shout on their podcast yeah thanks leo thanks dan (laughs) okay on to the announcements Our next episode will be at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on the 14th of November. Get Mitcast converted to your time zone. We have that link in the show notes. And our next live stream will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on the 6th of November. Hopefully, if everything goes well, nothing breaks. And we also have the link to convert that uh, to your time zone, which will be interesting over the next week or two as things change. But it's, it's already interesting because we had uh, our clocks set back one hour this morning. Yeah, it's a relatively social time here in the UK of coming up to nine o'clock. <laughs> oh, don't worry. We'll break that come next week. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of us have to, uh, well, all of us that watch have to also make time to be able to get Doctor Who in on the same day. Yeah. Okay. And on to our wrap up. Um I'm Joe, and if you uh, want to get a hold of me, you can catch me on a couple of the other podcasts that I'm on. That's uh, the Linux Link Tech Show, which I missed last week. Uh, that's tlts.org. I'm also on the Linux Lugcast, uh, linuxlugcast.com. We just had a Halloween special on Friday. Um, you can find me on MeWe. You can send me an email directly, jb at mintcast.org. And I also have a Kofi link where you can buy me a coffee if you want to. And then, Tony, where can we find you? 
Yeah, you can find me at some of my old shows on Hacker Public Radio. I'm host ID338. If you want to go over there and check me out, I'm on Twitter, TonyH1212. And I did look at it this week. <laughs> I'm very bad at checking my social media. <laughs> uh, I'm TH at Mintcast.org. Uh, I'm on distrohoppersdigest at gmail.com and we're recording again next week so look out for that episode towards the end of the week and if you want to go and check out my YouTube channel I've put a link in uh, the uh, wrap up for my YouTube channel as well as in the uh, you know in the weekly wanderings so yeah check out that if you want to and Norbert what about you? Well, you can send me an email at norbert at mincast.org. And for now, that's all. I'm still contemplating uh, making a YouTube channel in English, whenever that might happen in the future. And then the other, other Josh, where can we find you? Yeah, you can find me at jt at mincast.org, Josh Thacker on Discord, and at metal underscore foss on Twitter. And then Nishant, who wasn't able to make the show this week, you can catch him at Nishant at Mintcast.org, Rikon Ghost on Instagram, Rikon Ghost at GitHub, Ghost Rikon on Discord, uh, Maverick00783 at Steam. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Owen Peary for our audio editing, although I think Norbert will be doing the audio editing coming up. Uh, Josh Lowe for all his work on the website. Hobstar for our logo. InitRD for the animated Discord logo. And Londoner for our time sync. ByteMart Hosting for hosting Mintcast.org and our backup Mumble server. Archive.org for hosting our audio files. The Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Thanks Glenn. Glenn. And cool. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music and thanks for listening to this episode of the Yay, it's a wrap. Less than two hours. Right.